0: Chapter Four of The Turmoil This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bologna Times The Turmoil, Volume One of the Growth Trilogy by Booth Tarkington. Chapter Four. It was gray stone, with long roofs of thick green slate. An architect, who loved the milder gothic motives, had built what he liked. It was to be seen at once that he had been left unhampered, and he had wrought a picture out of his head into a noble and exultant reality. At the same time, a landscape designer had played so good a second ready-made accessories of screen, approach, and vista, that already whatever look of newness remained upon the place was to its advantage, as showing at least one thing yet clean under the grimy sky. For, though the smoke was thinner in this direction, and at this long distance from the heart of the town, it was not absent, and under tutelage of wind and weather, could be malignant even here, where cows had wandered in the meadows and corn had been growing not ten years gone. Altogether the new house was a success. It was one of those architects' successes which leave the owners veiled in privacy. It revealed nothing of the people who lived in it save that they were rich. There are houses that cannot be detached from their own people without protesting. Every inch of mortar seems to mourn the separation, and such a house, no matter what be done to it, is ever murmurous with regret, whispering the old name sadly to itself unceasingly. But the new house was of a kind to change hands without emotion. In our swelling cities, Great places of its type are useful as financial gauges of the business tides. Rich families, one after another, take title and occupy such houses. As fortunes rise and fall, they mark the high tide. It was impossible to imagine a child's toy wagon left upon a walk or driveway of the new house. And yet it was, as Bibbs rightly called it, beautiful. What the architect thought of the Golfo di Napoli, which hung in its vast gold revel of Rococo frame against the gray wood of the hall, is to be conjectured. Perhaps he had not seen it. Edith, did you say only eleven feet? Bibbs panted, staring at it, as the white-jacketed twin of a Pullman porter helped him to get out of his overcoat. Eleven without the frame, she explained. It's splendid, don't you think? It lightens things up so. The hall was kind of gloomy before. No gloom now, said Bibbs. This statue in the corner is pretty, too, she remarked. Mom and I bought that. And Bibbs turned at her direction to behold, amid a grove of tubbed palms, a life-size black-bearded moor of a plastic composition painted with unappeasable gloss and brilliancy. Upon his chocolate head he wore a gold turban. In his hand he held a gold-tipped spear, and for the rest he was red and yellow and black and silver. "'Hallelujah!' was the sole comment of the returned wanderer, and Edith, saying she would find Mama, left him blinking at the moor. Presently, after she had disappeared, he turned to the colored man who stood waiting, Bibbs' traveling bag in his hand. What do you think of it? Bibbs asked solemnly. Gran, replied the servitor, she mighty hard to dust, dust gettin' all them wrinkles. Yes, sir, she mighty hard to dust. I expect she must be said bibbs his glance returning reflectively to the black bull beard for a moment is there a place anywhere i could lie down <laughs> yes sir we got one nim spare rooms i'll fix up for yo sir right upstairs sir nice room he led the way and bibbs followed slowly stopping at intervals to rest and noting a heavy increase in the staff of service since the exodus from the old house. Maids and scrubwomen were at work under the patently nominal direction of another Pullman porter, who was profoundly enjoying his own affectation of being harassed with care. Everything got look spick and spam for de a big doings tonight,' Bibb's guide explained, chuckling. <laughs> "'Yes, sir, we got big doings tonight, big doings. The room to which he conducted his lagging charge was furnished in every particular like a room in a new hotel, and Bibbs found it pleasant, though, indeed, any room with a good bed would have seemed pleasant to him after his journey. He stretched himself flat immediately, and having replied, not now, to the attendant's offer to unpack the bag, closed his eyes wearily. White jacket, racially sympathetic lowered the window-shades, and made an exit on tiptoe, encountering the other white jacket, the harassed overseer, in the hall without. Said the emerging one, "'He mighty shaky, Mr. Jackson. Drop right down and shut his eyes. Eyelids all black. Rich folks gotta go same as anybody else. Anybody ask me if I change it at old boy? No, sir. Lemme keep his money.' I keep my black skin and keep out of the ground." Mr. Jackson expressed the same preference. "'Yes, sir. He looked to me like somebody already lay out,' he concluded. And upon the stairway landing, nearby, two old women, on all fours at their work, were likewise pessimistic. "'Heh!' said one, lamenting in a whisper. It gives me a turn to see him go by. "'white as wax and bony as a dead fish. "'Mrs. Cronin, tell me, "'didn't make ye kind of sick to look at him?' "'Sick? "'No more than the face of a blessed angel already in heaven.' "'Well,' said the other, "'I'd a be yo' me own come home to die once.' "'She fell silent at a rustling of skirts in the corridor above them. "'It was Mrs. Sheridan, hurrying to greet her son. She was one of those fat, pink people who fade and contract with age, like drying fruit. And her outside was a true portrait of her. Her husband and daughter had long ago absorbed her. What intelligence she had was given almost wholly to comprehending and serving those two, except in the presence of one of them she was nearly always absent-minded. Edith lived all day with her mother, as daughters do, and Sheridan so held his wife to her unity with him that she had long ago become unconscious of her existence as a thing separate from his. She invariably perceived his moods, and nursed him through when she did not share them, and she gave him a profound sympathy with the inmost spirit and purpose of his being, even though she did not comprehend it and partook of it only as a spectator. They had known but one actual altercation in their lives and that was thirty years past in the early days of sheridan's struggle when in order to enhance the favorable impression he believed himself to be making upon some capitalists he had thought it necessary to accompany them to a performance of the black crook but she had not once referred to this during the last ten years mrs sheridan's manner was hurried and inconsequent Her clothes rustled more than other women's clothes. She seemed to wear too many at a time, and to be vaguely troubled by them, and she was patting a skirt down over some unruly internal dissension at the moment she opened Bibb's door. At sight of the recumbent figure she began to close the door softly, withdrawing, but the young man had heard the turning of the knob and the rustling of skirts, and he opened his eyes. "'Don't go, mother,' he said. I'm not asleep. He swung his long legs over the side of the bed to rise, but she set a hand on his shoulder, restraining him, and he lay flat again. No, she said, bending over to kiss his cheek. i just come for a minute, but I want to see how you seem. Edith said, Poor Edith, he murmured. She couldn't look at me. She, nonsense, Mrs. Sheridan, having let in the light at a window, came back to the bedside. You look a great deal better than what you did before you went to the sanitarium, anyway. It's done you good. A body can see that right away. You need fatten up, of course, and you haven't got much color. No, he said, I haven't much color. But you will have when you get your strength back. Oh, yes, he responded cheerfully. Then I will. You look a great deal better than what I expected. Edith must have... "'A great vocabulary,' he chuckled. "'She's too sensitive,' said Mrs. Sheridan, "'and it makes her exaggerate a little. "'What about your diet?' "'That's all right. They told me to eat anything.' "'Anything at all?' "'Well, anything I could.' "'That's good,' she said, nodding. "'They mean for you just to build up your strength. "'That's what they told me the last time I went to see you at the sanitarium.' You look better than what you did then, and that's only a little time ago. How long was it? Eight months, I think. No, it couldn't be. I know it ain't that long, but maybe it was longer than I thought. And this last month or so, I haven't had scarcely even time to write more than just a line to ask how you were getting along. But I told Edith to write, the weeks I couldn't, and I asked Jim to too, and they both said they would. So I suppose you've kept up pretty well in the home news. Oh, yes. What I think you need, said the mother gravely, is to liven up a little and take an interest in things. That's what Papa was saying this morning, after we got your telegram. And that's what'll stimulate your appetite, too. He was talking over his plans for you. Plans? Bibbs turning on his side, shielded his eyes from the light with his hands so that he might see her better. What? he paused. What plans is he making for me, mother? She turned away, going back to the window to draw down the shade. Well, you better talk it over with him, she said with perceptible nervousness. He better tell you himself. I don't feel as if I had any call. Exactly, to go into it, and you better get to sleep now anyway. She came and stood by the bedside once more. But you must remember, Bibbs, whatever Papa does is for the best. He loves his children and wants to do what's right by all of them, and you'll always find he's right in the end. He made a little gesture of assent, which seemed to content her, and she rustled to the door, turning to speak again after she had opened it. You get a good nap now, so as to be all rested up for tonight. You, you mean, he? Bibbs stammered, having begun to speak too quickly. Checking himself, he drew a long breath, then asked quietly, Does father expect me to come downstairs this evening? Well, I think he does, she answered. You see, it's the housewarming, as he calls it, And he said he thinks all our children ought to be around us, as well as the old friends and other folks. It's just what he thinks you need, to take an interest and liven up. You don't feel too bad to come down, do you?" "'Mother?' "'Well? Take a good look at me,' he said." "'Oh, see here!' she cried. With brusque cheerfulness you're not so bad off as you think you are Bibbs. you're on the mend and it won't do you any harm to please your it isn't that he interrupted honestly i'm only afraid it might spoil somebody's appetite edith i told you the child was too sensitive she interrupted in turn you're a plenty good-looking enough man for anybody "'You look like you've been through a long spell "'and begun to get well, and that's all there is to it.' "'All right. I'll come to the party. "'If the rest of you can stand it, I can.' "'It'll do you good,' she returned, rustling into the hall. "'Now take a nap, and I'll send one of the help "'to wake you in time for you to, to get dressed up before dinner. "'You go to sleep right away now, Bibbs.' "'Bibbs was unable to obey.' though he kept his eyes closed. Something she said kept running in his mind, repeating itself over and over, interminably. His plans for you. His plans for you. His plans for you. His plans for you. And then, taking the place of his plans for you, after what seemed a long, long while, her flurried voice came back to him insistently, seeming to whisper in his ear, He loves his children. He loves his children. He loves his children. children. You'll find he's always right. You'll find he's always right. Until at last he had drifted into the state of half-dreams and distorted realities. The voice seemed to murmur from beyond a great black wing that came out of the wall and stretched over his bed. It was a black wing within the room. And at the same time it was a black cloud crossing the sky, bridging the whole earth from pole to pole, It was a cloud of black smoke, and out of the heart of it came a flurried voice whispering over and over, His plans for you, his plans for you, his plans for you, and then there was nothing. He woke, refreshed, stretched himself gingerly, as one might have a care against too quick or too long a pull upon a frayed elastic, and, getting to his feet, went blinking to the window, and touched the shade, so that it flew up, letting in pale sunset. He looked out into the lemon-colored light, and smiled wanly at the next house, as Edith's grandiose phrase came to mind, the old Vertre's country mansion. It stood on a broad lawn, which was separated from the Sheridans by a young hedge, and it was a big square plain old box of a house, with a giant salt setter atop for a cupola paint had been spared for a long time, and no one could have put a name to the color of it, but in spite of that the place had no look of being out of heel, and the sward was as neatly trimmed as the Sheridan's own. The separating hedge ran almost beneath Bibb's window, for this wing of the new house extended here almost to the edge of the lot, and directly opposite the window the Vertrees' lawn had been grated so as to make a little knoll upon which stood a small rustic summer-house. It was almost on a level with Bibb's window, and not thirty feet away, and it was easy for him to imagine the present dynasty of vertreses in grievous outcry when they had found this retreat ruined by the juxtaposition of the Parvenu intruder. Probably the summer-house was pleasant and pretty in summer." It had the look of a place wherein little girls had played for a generation or so with dolls and housekeeping, or where a lovely old lady might come to read something dull on warm afternoons. But now, in the thin light, it was desolate, the color of dust, and hung with haggard vines which had lost their leaves. Bibbs looked at it with grave sympathy, probably feeling some kinship with anything so dismantled. Then he turned to a shovel-glass beside the window, and paid himself the dubious tribute of a thorough inspection. He looked the mirror up and down, slowly, repeatedly, but came in the end to a long and earnest scrutiny of the face. Throughout this cryptic seance, his manner was profoundly impersonal. He had the air of an entomologist intent upon classifying a specimen, but finally he appeared to become pessimistic. He shook his head solemnly then gazed again and shook his head again and continued to shake it slowly in complete disapproval you certainly are one horrible sight he said aloud and at that he was instantly aware of an observer turning quickly he was vouchsafed the picture of a charming lady framed in a rustic aperture of the summer house and staring full into his window straight into his eyes, too, for the infinitesimal fraction of a second before the flashingly censorious withdrawal of her own. Composedly, she pulled several dead twigs from a vine, the manner of her action conveying a message or proclamation to the effect that she was in the summer-house for the sole purpose of such-like pruning and tending, and that no gentleman could suppose her presence there to be due to any other purpose whatsoever, or— that, being there on that account, she had allowed her attention to wander for one instant in the direction of things of which she was in reality unconscious. Having pulled enough twigs to emphasize her unconsciousness, and at the same time her disapproval of everything in the nature of a Sheridan, or belonging to a Sheridan, she descended the knoll with maintained composure, "'and sauntered toward a side door of the country mansion of the Vertreeses. "'An elderly lady, bonneted and cloaked, "'opened the door and came to meet her. "'Are you ready, Mary? "'I've been looking for you. "'What were you doing?' "'Nothing. "'Just looking into one of Sheridan's windows,' said Mary Vertrees. "'I got caught at it.' "'Mary!' cried her mother just as we were going to call. Good heavens! We'll go, just the same,' the daughter returned. "'I suppose those women would be glad to have us if we'd burned their house to the ground.' "'But who saw you?' insisted Mrs. Vertrees. "'One of the sons. I suppose he was. I believe he's insane or something. At least I hear they keep him in a sanitarium somewhere and never talk about him. He was staring at himself in the mirror and talking to himself.' Then he looked out, and caught me. What did he? Nothing, of course. How did he look? Like a ghost in a blue suit, said Miss Vertries, moving toward the street, and waving a white-gloved hand in farewell to her father, who was observing them from the window of his library. Rather tragic, and altogether impossible. Do come on, mother, and let's get it over. And Mrs. Vertries, with many misgivings, set forth with her daughter for their gracious assault upon the new house next door. End of chapter 4